Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to again uh, talk about the Kingdom of God. But today we have a special guest, Alan uh, Alfred Adas. Uh, we'll just call him Al, and uh, he's uh, he's a fairly well-known individual. Talks about a lot of different things. I'll let him kind of tell what he's all about when we bring him on the show. Uh, we'll have a few announcements uh, towards the end of the show uh, and at the beginning of the next half hour uh, about some of the events coming up. And so you should have your pencil and paper ready if you want to meet with some of the other people on the network. Also, if you want to call in and ask Al some questions, the telephone number is 414-39... Oh, actually, we've got a different number now. I guess we're going to use the uh, 724-444. Oh, that's not it yet. <laughs> <laughs> the one we're using is 559-726-1300. Okay. It's a conference call, and to get on there, you use code number 795-132. Okay, give that one more time. 559 559- Seven two six one three zero zero. Paul, are you there? Yeah, yeah. you flipped out for me for a second. You want to try that again? Sure, sorry. Five five nine seven two six one three zero zero. The code is seven nine five one three two. And just press star six when you have a question. Okay, so I've, I'm going to have to keep the, all these different numbers up to. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, uh, we're uh, as they come in, but uh, first uh, I want to introduce Al. I seen him on, uh, I think he was on 60 Minutes, uh, maybe even on CNN. Uh, he's been around for a long time. He has his own radio program that is on several times uh, on another station, so I won't mention the name of the station. But uh, it is mentioned on our website where we mentioned that he's going to be on the call today. So I'm going to welcome Al Adas and uh, let him introduce himself. What are you all about, Al? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's, sometimes I wonder. Um, it's it, I, For me, it all started out back in 1983. I went through a divorce, and I suffered a great, what I thought was a great injustice. And I became a student of the legal system. It was a... Uh, a child custody battle, and I lost. And um, I thought, well, if I studied the law real hard, I thought it would take me somewhere between 18 months and three years to rectify the problem. And here we are going on 29 years later, and I never did rectify the problem. It's just you study and you study, and the more you study, the more confused you become, at least initially. But you learn things over time, and... In fact, the, the the big surprise in all is I started studying the law for the purpose of building a better battle axe. I intended to learn enough law where I would wreak uh, I would wreak vengeance on my ex-wife and her attorney and whatever part of the system got in my way. In the end, I never did get any vengeance. But the surprise, the big surprise, is that you study the law long enough. And it'll bring you kicking them back to God. And it was, I wasn't looking for God. And I, it was the biggest surprise in the, in, in the whole process that 
you go in this, you're looking for vengeance, and I wind up finding God or he finds me, one or the other. But over time, you understand that you're engaged in spiritual warfare. And once you reach that understanding, if you're going to ask me what am I all about, that's what I'm all about. And what that means is you try as best you can to understand what the good Lord wants you to do, and I don't always understand that. It's it's not clear. It's it's one of those things. It's more feeling than anything else. But you become you become dedicated to service, right, to the good Lord. If you once you get into this, where you understand, where it really grabs hold of you and say, "Wait a second, we're involved in spiritual warfare." It's easy to say, hard to learn. But once you finally begin to perceive that, that would be what I guess I'm all about. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think everybody has a little bit different story how they got to a point where they began to look at law, look at uh, the state of things in the world today. Mm-hmm. And uh, myself, I actually started out uh, just kneeling down and asking God, something's wrong, something's messed up. Uh, in the world today, to live rather remote at that time from the world, and said, uh, "You got to show me because I can't figure it out." And so that's where I started from. But I almost immediately—I uh, mean, the very next day—there was a stack of law books on my front doorstep, and I began to study the law. <laughs> I, I wasn't really vengeful. I kind of gave up trying to figure out things for myself and started asking God. And I think sometimes in these hard uh, hard things that we face, uh, you know, these trials and tribulations, uh, we end up going back and praying to God for the answers we should have been asking him for all along. Um, my first discovery of the law was the contractual nature of government, or at least government as I saw it uh, and was experiencing it in those days. I wasn't in trouble with the law. Uh, my father actually had been an attorney. He wanted me to be an attorney, and I just never could find that an attractive pursuit. But studying the law, that contractual nature of the government that I was experiencing at that time uh, seemed to be a key element. If if you had one element that you would want to bring to the attention of the American people, what would be that element of the law that you would be concerned with? Well, it's, you know, there's a number that I could... It depends on whether you're talking about... I have one answer if we're talking about procedure. I have another answer if we are talking about fundamental law. Um I don't know, it's, if we were going to talk about fundamental law, I'd go all the way back to Genesis. And for me, it is a powerful and important insight. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, on the sixth day God created man in his image and gave man dominion over the animals. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's, that doesn't amount to anything. That's, you know, it's interesting, but what's that got to do with modern law? And what it has to do is this. I was sued by the Attorney General of Texas for $25,000 per day. That's $9 million per year. I was added, I was the seventh defendant. I was the last of seven defendants. I was added in 2006. The case actually initiated in 2001. 
husband, wife, and their corporation were charged by the Attorney General with the manufacture and distribution of a controlled substance. And it wasn't meth or cocaine or heroin, or, but it was under the same law, essentially, although it was civil, not criminal. But they were the, 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 the substance they were charged with manufacturing and distributing the controlled substance was colloidal silver, which most of the people in your audience probably understand is an inexpensive antibiotic. It's made of uh, distilled water and silver ions, and it's an effective antibiotic against a, a significant number of pathogens. Well, these the first three defendants, the husband, wife, and, the, and their corporation, each one of them was liable for 25 grand apiece per day. They hired an attorney, one of the better law firms in Texas, that paid them $160,000 to defend against the Attorney General of Texas and the Texas Department of State Health Services. And the case, incidentally, was initiated by the FDA in Washington, but the Attorney General of Texas prosecuted on their behalf. The first three defendants spent $160,000 on attorneys, and it drove them into bankruptcy. And the bankruptcy put so much stress on the husband and wife, they, they were at each other's throats, and they filed for divorce. And eventually, they left Texas for parts unknown. But before they left, they sold some of their assets. They didn't sell their business, but they sold some of their assets to another man in Texas. And he decided he was going to manufacture colloidal silver with his corporation and his trust. And next thing you know, he becomes the next three defendants in the same case. He heard about me and he asked if I could help. I said I'd try. I volunteered to be fiduciary for his trust. And the Attorney General added me as a defendant. I volunteered to be fiduciary for his trust just so I'd have standing to speak in court. I didn't anticipate I would be made a defendant, but I was. Well, now I'm on the hook for 25 grand a day, nine million dollars a year, which tends to focus tends to focus your mind a little bit. <laughs> I read the relevant law, and I have it right here in front of me. Um, the Texas Health and Safety Code, section 431.002, subsection 14, defines drugs in Texas. And uh, the, according to the Attorney General in the, in the case I was involved in, said the key to this case lies in determining at law, not as a matter of fact, whether the defendant's colloidal file products meet the definition of drugs. And they give you the definition of drugs at the Texas level and then also in the federal code. And they're almost identical. The two definitions are virtually identical. And it says drug means drug means articles recognized in the official United States pharmacopoeia national formulary or any supplement to it. Articles designed or intended in the use in the uh, for use in the diagnosis, cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease in man or other animals. And I saw that, and I, I the first thing I thought when I saw it, I, I mean, I've told this story. I don't know probably a couple hundred times in the last in the last six years, when I saw the phrase man or other animals, and the first thing I thought is, why you damn fools? You don't even understand what you're writing. Man or other animals means they deem man to be an animal. All right? If, you, if I said a horse or other animals, it makes perfect sense. We know that animals is a large generic class, and horse is one example, one kind of animal that's in that class. If I said cow or uh, cows or other animals, it makes perfect sense. When you say man or other animals, you mean that you are defining man to be an animal. 
And I thought twice. I thought it was an accident. I thought it was a stupidity when I first saw it. But you keep reading, and it says articles other than food attended to affect the structure or any function of the body of man or other animals. They use the phrase man or other animals a second time in the definition of drugs. They use it twice. And I knew right then, my God, it's not an accident. The government thinks of us as animals. And I am a student of the Bible. I'm not a biblical scholar, but I knew right away, Genesis, this is a violation of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, on the sixth day, God created man in his image and gave man dominion over the animals. As a Christian, as a Jew, probably as a Muslim, I'm not a student of the Muslim faith, but probably as a Muslim, there I'm going to guess that the Muslim's Genesis parallels that which we find in the Old Testament. And if they, if they, if, if their Genesis also says on the sixth day God created man in his image and gave man dominion over the animals, I can't have dominion over the animals and be an animal. And when the government declares that I am an animal, they are violating my freedom of religion. So I devised a religious freedom defense on this case. Once I saw this, I said, my God. So I put this together on the basis of religious freedom. And, again, uh, for what it's worth, the definition at the federal level at 21 United States, U.S. United States Code, Section 321, subsection D, or G, excuse me, subparagraph 1, uh, virtually identical definition says the same thing. Man or other animals says it twice in the definition. Both Texas law, federal law, we looked at five other states. Those five states also have the man or other animals phrase in their definition of drugs, we presume that you'll find it in virtually all of the states. In addition to that, all the states are defining the drug laws in terms of man or other animals, which means they're based on the presumption that you and I are animals. Well, I again, you asked me for fundamental for this, for what's important for me, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I told him, look, I'm a man made in God's image. I'm endowed by my creator. I've got a First Amendment and also Texas, I think it's, I think it's Article 1, Section 6, Religious Freedom for the, in the Texas Constitution, but I don't recall clearly. But I have a freedom of religion. You can't impose a religion upon me. We sent this defense... It took me a while to put this together. It didn't fall. Just you know, it's more complex than than it sounds here. But we advanced this. We sent this defense to the attorney general. We had been receiving certified mail, a nice thick packet, about a half inch thick. You understand? About every two to six weeks, we'd been getting certified mail from the attorney general's office. And it is unnerving to go out to the post, see the postman coming to the door, and they're going to give you another package of certified mail from the Attorney General of Texas because he wants to take you down for 25 grand a day. And you keep getting this stuff. We didn't exactly know what we were doing. We get it, get it, get it. When we, when we put the religious freedom defense together and sent it in to the Attorney General, they went dead silent for five months. We'd been getting certified mail every two to six weeks. We got nothing for five months. And then when they came back, John K. Dietz, who was the chief administrative judge, or at least was, I don't know if he still is, the chief administrative judge for Travis County, which is the seat of government in Texas, that's an important position, and he's a brilliant man. He took over the case. 
And after he talked to us, he tried to scare us a little bit at one hearing. And then he said, I'm going to do something I've virtually never done before. I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to bring you guys back into, into my chambers and see if we can negotiate a settlement on this case. Well, they spent another five months trying to settle the case. And then they finally, we had two hearings on jurisdiction, and then they simply dropped the case. In 2007 was the last time we heard, we heard from them. They, they had invested six years and nearly a half million dollars in pretrial investigation and pretrial hearings. And they just dropped the case because a pro se came up and said, wait a second, I'm a man made in God's image. And the reason is because the insight, in my opinion, I don't know what they thought, I, I, I can only speculate, but understanding that the definition of drugs presumes the people to be animals is politically explosive. The whole war on drugs initiated by President Nixon back in 1971 is based on a definition of drugs that presumes the people to be animals rather than men and women made in God's image and also with our Declaration of Independence endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The drug war laid the foundation for much of the modern police state. I'm only guessing, but I'll bet that half of what the police do right now involve drug-related offenses. And all of these drug-related offenses are based on a definition of drugs that presumes the people to be animals in violation of their freedom of religion. And the police state laid the foundation for our prison industrial complex. I've heard that 70% of the people in the federal penitentiaries, at least, are there on drug-related crimes. And this, this huge, this enormous edifice of millions of tons of steel and concrete go into these prisons and the police state and the war on drugs. This is all perched on a little bitty definition of drugs that presumes the people to be animals and every bit of it can be toppled if this thing goes to court. We looked, did some, we did some research on this and we looked back. The earliest we found, the earliest evidence was the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act. 1906, and you folks can look this up, and it's in Section 6 of the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act. You put 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act into your, into your Google it, and it'll take you. You'll find, you'll find the, the law, and uh, look down for Section 6, and you'll see that they define both food and drugs in terms of man or other animals. It means the government has been regarding the people as nothing but livestock for over a century. And to the best of my knowledge, I'm, a, I'm certainly the first layman to read the law and understand what it means. And there are virtually no, virtually no attorneys who understand what it means. Or if they do, they don't say anything about it. Well, knowing that Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says man is made in God's image and he's given dominion over the animals and therefore can't be one. You asked me for what is powerful and important. For me, that's big time. When you right. can walk out from under a threatened lawsuit by the Attorney General of Texas for $9 million a year, okay, by referencing the Bible, that's pretty important fundamental. One thought that occurred to me while you were talking about this was uh, 
a conversation I had with a census taker. Uh, I haven't been counted in the census for decades and decades and decades. Uh, they actually don't even ask me for information anymore when they come by. They usually ask me for information about the empty houses near us. <laughs> but they never ask me for anything anymore. But uh, one of the things in the last census taker that was here, I, I was talking to him, and I pointed out that you're just counting livestock. And she looked at me stunned, and then she said, is that why my paycheck comes from the agricultural yep. department? Yep, yep. And <laughs> I said, well, I didn't know that's where it came from, but that certainly is a hint as yep. to what they're up to. I mean, they you know, call us human resources. Yep. Uh, what does that tell you? And they actually have a new term uh, that's even more uh, damning than human resource. I can't remember what it is. I heard it from a postal employee. No, it's taxpayer probably or voter or something like that. Oh, it's I even worse than that. It's more damning, even more damning than human resource be called yeah. a taxpayer. Um yeah. This is probably, you can go to an outfit called genocidewatch.org. Okay. And they have a they have a document up there. You have to do a little fishing. They have us up on the tabs. They have one that says genocide. There's probably about ten tabs at the top, and one says genocide. You look in it, you'll find a document entitled "The Eight Stages of Genocide." The third stage of genocide is dehumanization. One group denies the humanity of the other group. Members of it are equated with animals, vermin, insects, or diseases. This is the first thing they do when the Hutus decide to chop up the Tutsis. They say those Tutsis are nothing but animals, because if they're animals, you can kill them all. Not just the combatants. You can go after the women, the children, the elderly. Kill them all. You exterminate them like a hive of wasps if they are nothing but animals. In the, during World War II, one of the first things the Nazis did at the beginning of the war was pass laws to declare the Jews to be untermenschen, meaning subhuman, undermen, um, subhuman, effectively animals. If they're animals, you can kill them all. You can kill the women, kill the children, kill them all. This is an act of genocide, and this is no joke. This isn't a stretch. The government... According to the terms of Genocide Watch, they have been committing acts of dehumanization against the American people for over a century. That is, persistent genocide committed against the American people by their own government. Here's the problem. Who can claim, who can prosecute anyone for genocide in this country? I've looked at the genocide laws, and it's my understanding that the only person, the only entity that can allege genocide is the federal government. In theory, I can't charge genocide. I can see it. I know that's what they're doing. But the government has passed laws that no, only the almighty government can declare whether charge somebody with genocide or not. Why? Because the government is committing genocide. And they don't want to take a chance on being charged with it by you know, someone like me, for example. I mean, you can prove this in court. And again, these are the kinds of arguments where the government sees this coming and they have to get out of the way. This is politically explosive. The government, everybody listening to this program understands that the government has thought of us and treated us as animals for a considerable period of time. But... Nobody's expected. I certainly never expected to see it in law. We found something like 23 separate 
instances in federal law, Texas law, rules, regulations that applied directly in our case where they deemed the people to be animals. We're going to have to come back in just a minute. We're coming up on a break. Uh, when we get back, uh, we'll have open the lines for phone calls, and we'll see you on the other side. I pledge allegiance to the King of Kings and to his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, one holy nation under the heavenly Father with grace, mercy, and justice for all. The Greatest Prophecy DVD from Across the Border Productions. Embrace the little known, the greatest prophecy given by the great high priest, the once secret plan for mankind at the first sacrificial event. Believe it. Behold the end times in Daniel chapter 2 because the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. It is the key to prophecy future. Comprehend the seven-year great tribulation deception. Be not deceived. Understand the great prophecy delusion because if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Be forewarned. America, in prophecy, exposed for all to see. You must see it. The mark of the beast. No, it's not a biochip implant. A much better and more secure technology is already here, and you are already using it. We will bonus you with a free copy of Richard Bennett's groundbreaking work, The Inquisition when you send a support donation of $20 to First Amendment Radio. Visit the shopping page at our website or send $20 cash to First Amendment Radio, 139 East Tulare Avenue, Tulare, T-U-L-A-R-E, California, 93274. Send your support donation of $20 cash to First Amendment Radio, 139 East Tulare, T-U-L-A-R-E, Avenue, Tulare, California, or $30 U.S. for international priority mail outside the USA. A wise man is forewarned and prepares for the times to come. Will you be ready? The Greatest Prophecy DVD. If you read the history books, the most often asked question to Southerners was this, why did you fight? And the most often given answer is, because you're here. In other words, the South did not invade the North, the North invaded the South. Was it the Civil War or War of Federal Aggression? John Weaver sets the record straight in this DVD series on the Civil War from the Old Past Christian History Conference. Was there a war to set the slaves free? Or was it a war to enslave us all? Get this DVD and judge for yourself. War of Federal Aggression. The truth seems strange only because we've been indoctrinated with a fiction. War of Federal Aggression. Get it today. Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from LibertyRadioLive.com. Order online today or call 559-781-3773. 559 
Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking with Alfred Adask, uh, who's been talking about things like genocide and what a man is and what an animal is. And if you have any questions that you would like to ask him, you can call in on 559-726-1300. That's 559 559- 726 1300 and then you enter in the code 795 132 and push star 6 and uh, Paul will take your call uh, Alfred uh, we're, uh, we've been talking about uh, when I originally asked you what you thought was the most important and you said uh, uh if we're talking about law and procedural or fundamental law. Hmm. And, of, and, of course, that right there, you're already designating what you thought was the most important because fundamental law was <laughs> where you went. Yeah. Uh, so that's, to me, that was really important, understanding the difference between things like statutes and uh, ordinances and uh, and fundamental law, what that fundamental law is. and. Over the years, I found a lot of people who want to be free. They look at the government. They see it as oppressive. They see it as uh, kind of Canaanite or like Cain himself, uh, overbearing. And they want to be free of that, but they don't want to take the responsibility of Abel uh, and the responsibility of Seth uh, who were and Noah and, and, the, and Abraham who was following after the ways of God. They just want to be free of the tyrants of the world, and I find that as a major stumbling block and a lot of effort that's being uh, extruded out there. Uh, what would your comments be along those lines? I think it. I think it could be argued that there's only one real freedom in all of life, and that is choose this day who you will serve, God or Mammon, and everything else flows from that. And it might be the only real freedom any of us have. But you will make that choice or the choice will be made for you. Most of the people who say they want to be free the way you were describing them, they want to be, you've got a choice. You can be free from God or you can be free from mammon, but you can't be free from both. You are going to serve one or the other. And that's the way the world works as near as I'm able to see. And there are people out there saying, no, I just want to be free. I don't want to serve anybody but myself. Well, it's not happening that way. You're going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. And regardless of whether you like it or you don't like it, that's the way it appears, to me at least, to work. So the people that just want to be free from everybody, they're really anarchists. And they're not just looking for freedom in the normal sense that some of us might think about it. They want to be able to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it, and that's their notion of freedom. It doesn't work that way. I mean, it, it doesn't. That's anarchy. It's not. It's not the kind of freedom where my right to throw my fist ends at the at the at the beginning of your nose. Um, yeah, I can throw my fist all day, but as soon as I hit somebody in the nose, I got a problem. You're not free to do that. So the choice is: Who are you going to serve? And it's not an easy choice. 
there are, you know, this is this is a situation. You want to serve the good Lord, fine, but don't imagine it's going to be just a little cakewalk. There is a price to be paid. You want to serve mammon, fine. Go ahead and serve mammon. But you better hope there's no God because you're going to have some splaining to do in the next life. And they say, what the heck were you doing down there? Serving mammon, serving the government, serving the secular system. One of the one of the things that uh, we constantly quote here is uh, some of the directives of Jesus Christ, uh, which most churches don't even they never even mention. Many pastors don't even know that Christ said these things. <laughs> uh, you know, when he talks about the weightier matters, he listed them as law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And I can't even find hardly a pastor who knows that list yeah. of what Jesus called the weightier matters. Um, but uh, one of the things Jesus said is we were not to be like the governments of the Gentiles. And the yeah. word Gentiles there was ethnos, which simply means other nations. Mm-hmm. So following some of the same reasoning that you have, if Jesus is saying you're not to be like other nations, mm-hmm. he's referring to his apostles and his followers as uh, a nation, an actual government. And he even finishes that statement with, I appoint unto you a kingdom. But what his instruction was was not to be like them who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other. And it seems to me that one of the ways that people arrest uh, or become arrested in these uh, systems where they fall under the authority of mammon or whatever you want to call it, uh, this gigantic trust uh, that they have all these human livestock in, is that they themselves covet their neighbor's goods through these men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Most Christian churches say that's perfectly okay to apply to the government for benefits, even though the government doesn't actually give you anything that it hasn't already taken away from your neighbor. But we find that is a is a major stumbling block for most churches in seeking what Christ said to seek, which was the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So does that stimulate any thoughts in your mind that you can well. to us? I can tell you that 501c3 churches, when I go into them, and it's it's relatively rare that I do. I don't care to. I get the same feeling going in there that I get when I go into a hospital. They, they for me, they feel a little bit creepy. They are not the real. That's not the real church. Right? If people that are tangled up in these 501c3s, these are the people who are trying to not choose this day who they will serve. You're going to serve God, or you're going to serve a mammon. A 501c3 is an idea that you can serve two, serve two uh, masters at the same time. You're going to pay taxes to the government. We're also going to talk about the good Lord. It's the best of all possible worlds, and I think that's bull crap. I think the truth of the matter is you make your choice. You know, we have these churches that seem to think that the church is the building, the edifice, the stained glass, you know the uh, you know the, the cross up on top of that's not the church that's 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 and especially they they get the five hundred one c three to protect all of that physical grandeur you know? and the church is a bunch of people get together 
That's what the church is. And they can meet in somebody's living room or out in the lawn or in a park or out on the street. They don't need that building. But we have a system where most churches are more interested in the edifice than they are in the populace. And uh, I I see a certain pattern in uh, in history. Of course, that in my uh, view of things, uh, the movement of Israel for 400 years without an edifice was simply a tent that would go up and yeah. come down and go over to another place, go back yeah. up again and come down and. And uh, they had feasts that were actually designed uh, not to serve God, but to serve one another. It, it bound the society together with friendship. And with, mm-hmm. uh, it, I mean, the government of Israel operated for 400 years with entirely free will offerings. Yep. That was completely supported by free will offerings. The state, as an organized system, was not top down. It was basically still in the hands of the people. Yep. who tied to ministers they chose according to the minister's service. Now, and literally, their tithing was a tax, but they taxed themselves by deciding, is this guy doing the job of government? Okay, then I'll, I'll, I'll pay him. But if he's not doing the job of government, he says, I'm not going to pay that guy. I'm going to find somebody else who will do it, and I'll pay him. <laughs> That's where the people are remaining the state. So anyway, what I see, one of the things they strayed wrong was when they started building a stone temple and centralizing uh, authority, started the voice to the people, electing a king. Exactly. That's where that's where that that's you get that king first and then later you get that stone temple. Right. Uh, I mean, the, David, we had the King Saul first, then we have David, and David's going to build a temple. And God says, no, you can leave that for your son Solomon. All right, so Solomon, King Solomon builds the temple and so on. Well, it's all very interesting that we've got the stone temple, but God warned him. You know, I mean, that temple, you have to under, you have to suppose that the temple isn't really God's will exactly. I mean, yeah, he's going along with it, but he warned them in, what, Second Samuel, they wanted a king, and he warned them, and Second Samuel said to God, he said, these people are rejecting me, and God says, uh-uh, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me when they ask for an earthly king. And he warned them, he's going to take your, your sons and march them off to war, he's going to make scullery maids out of your daughters, he's going to take your vineyards and the rest of that, and everybody says, no, no, we want a king. Well, you got the king, and before you're done, you also get a temple to go along with it, you know. I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, yeah, that's First Samuel chapter eight, where he extensively warns them, which was also quoted in Common Sense by Thomas Paine, in which most Christians today never hear in their modern churches because they all think they're saved because they've accepted Jesus Christ without even knowing who Jesus Christ was and what he was talking about. But yeah, the people think that the temple was a good thing. But it actually was absolutely contrary to what God wanted. But God lets us screw up. That's he says, fine, they want a king, let them have one. But they'll see. Yeah, You'll learn. But he, he tells them what to expect. And the, the amazing thing, when you read that warning in Samuel, first, eight, uh, first uh, chapter 8, um, it's exactly what we got today. 
<laughs> in the United States and in many countries all over the world, every country all over the world, is that the government takes and takes and takes and takes. Well, you know, one of the things you mentioned government all over the world. I've talked about this man or other animals definition of drugs. I've been talking about it off and on now for six years. And I've had people, my own radio program goes out on shortwave, and we have listeners in foreign countries. And I've had people from England and also Australia who've heard me talk about the man or other animal's drug laws. They read the relevant laws, the definitions of drugs for English law and Australian law, and they found the same thing. They found text where they were much surprised to, under, to discover that the Australians regard the people as nothing but animals and the English regard the people as nothing but animals. And what that tells you or what it implies is that the presumption that we are nothing but animals is fundamental to the New World Order. It's a fundamental premise that the New World Order is built on. Now, it's dangerous to everybody. You can look at Genesis 9-6. And it explains why you can't kill a man. Why is it wrong to murder a man? And the answer is because he's made in God's image. That's why you can kill the cows and the pig and the sheep and the goat and the rest of that sort of thing. Fine, no problem. But you can't kill a man because he's made in God's image. If you walk away from that and you accept the argument that you are nothing but an animal and you are encouraged to accept that argument by the theory of evolution, Government wants, they're teaching people, you're nothing but animals. You're evolved. What's that mean? You're nothing but a damn primate. You are not a man made in God's image. If you are a creature that is evolved, you are evolved from lower forms of life, and you are not a man made in God's image. And if you will accept that, if you'll accept that description for yourself, then guess what? The government can treat you just like a chicken on the Tyson poultry processing plant. They crowd you in as tight as they want, cut your little beak off, and harvest you as soon as you've put on an optimal amount of pounds. I mean, this is a big, big issue. This is not small stuff. This isn't an oddity. This is powerful. If I'm not a man made in God's image, I am. I have no hope in this life, and government can do anything they want to me. On the other hand, if I am a man made in God's image and endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights as per the Declaration of Independence, now I'm an individual sovereign and the government is my servant rather than my master. And it goes to, who are you? The, uh, the idea that the government is our servant, if this government is now operating iniquitously, uh, in other words... Uh, actually a product of King's philosophy, which I think that's actually what we're dealing with. We, there's always the only one two forms. Uh, Cain. Cain? Uh, Cain. You know, Cain formed the first city-state. Yep. And okay. I believe that he made the people of that city-state human resources, and that he created a system very much like we did, same as Nimrod. Nimrod was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. That's actually the better... Uh, translation. Uh, he hunted men by offering them benefits, and the greatest destroyers of uh, liberty is the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits, and by offering them benefits at the expense of their neighbor, they get them right off committing a sin against uh, God's law, which is coveting their neighbor's goods, 
And so they bring people into their Babylonic system by getting the people to operate in this covetous fashion. And then who are these people going to cry out? I mean, several times in the Bible they warn you, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen because the God will not hear you in that day. So That's right. I think these systems are predicated on getting you to sin against God, sin against that nature that you were originally made in, that image that you were originally made in, and they remake you. So if that's the, can I say that Nimrod's government, Babylon's government, is my servant? Or should I stand farther back and say, uh, you know, that I serve only God and you don't have any jurisdiction? I, I was curious about the statement you made about two other um, meetings on jurisdictional issues. Uh, but I don't want to get off the subject of what I was saying, but I was curious as to what what jurisdictional issue you were bringing up, if it was simply a technical one, or are we dealing with this idea of two kingdoms, God's kingdom and all the others, which are basically Canaanite, Cain kingdoms, uh, Babylonic kingdoms. Could I claim those kingdoms, my servant? I wouldn't want to necessarily do that. Can you? No, I wouldn't think so. I, I wouldn't think... No, within the way this country was set up, it goes to the concept of sovereignty. And from the time of Saul forward in the Western world, it was presumed that a king was sovereign because the king received his rights from God. The king had the divine right of kings, particularly in the Holy Roman Empire. We had one sovereign in the nation of France and one sovereign in the nation of Spain and one sovereign in the nation of England. And the sovereign was the one guy who received his rights directly from God. That's what made him sovereign. All else were subjects because they did not get their rights from God. That was the fundamental premise behind sovereignty in the Western world. You went, the, the man who got to be king or queen went through a coronation ceremony. It was performed in a church. They gave you a crown that was supposed to emulate the corona that you see around the heads of the saints and the apostles in the medieval paintings. It was the symbol that this guy is God's man. And all the rest of you are subjects, and he, you all have to pay attention to what the sovereign does because he gets his rights from God. When our Declaration of Independence came in, in 1776, year of our Lord, the founders wrote, and they said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We are all equally endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. These unalienable rights, in my opinion, correspond to the divine right of kings. We're certainly given these rights flow from God, our Creator. And with that statement, they elevated all of the people back to the status of sovereigns over the government. Prior to that... There had been only one sovereign, the king, and below him you, you had the earthly king, and below him you had the earthly government, and below them, you had that government, you had the people. But when they declared all of the people got their rights, had an endowment from God, they elevated all of the people to individual sovereigns, and they completely changed the law form. Under the Declaration of Independence, we got God number one, we the people number two as individual sovereigns, and government number three. In that law form, the government is at the bottom of the pecking order. The government is our servant, not our master. 
over in England, they had God number one, king number two, government number three, people number four. The people were below the government because they didn't get their rights. The government was the servant of, of the earthly king. The people were below the government. Government was their master. Why? They didn't get their rights from God. Um, very few people appreciate the extraordinary impact of the Declaration of Independence. I told people for, I don't know, a considerable amount of time, it's, the, in my opinion, the high watermark of the Protestant Reformation. It's not just a political document. It is a profoundly spiritual document, and it moves all of the people back. The last time we saw anything similar to the law form that was initiated by the Declaration of Independence was the era of judges in the Old Testament, where everyone was under the law, at least everyone in the Hebrew nation, all of the Israelites, were under directly under God. They didn't have a king. Later on, we went from judges, we went from judges to kings, a different law form. Now we have a now we have one man gets his rights from God. Everybody else is subject. This is why, good Lord, when He says they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. They wanted out from under God. They didn't want him breathing down their neck all the time. So they said, look, we're going to appoint you to be God's number one man, Greg. You can be king. Let God breathe down your neck all the time. The rest of us will go out and do whatever we please. They rejected God. In any case, our country started out by trying to restore that, that fundamental idea, at least in my opinion. And over time, our government has worked mightily to strip us of a memory, of our memory of the fundamental spiritual foundation this country was built on, strip us of our understanding of how vitally important it is. But you don't just sit back and say, oh, I believe in the theory of evolution. Well, great. Now that you believe in the theory of evolution, the government can do anything it wants to you. You are nothing but livestock. The only shot you have at liberty, the only shot you have at any kind of freedom, is you've got to be a man made in God's image and endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights. If you're there, fine. Now you got something. Do you want to take uh, embrace evolution? Yeah, it seems logical. Well, it may be logical, but you are going to lose your liberty. Right. Uh, one of the things that uh, we write about is a lot of the unknown history, the history of, uh, of mankind that has been literally and designedly uh, deleted from our textbooks, uh, especially in public school. Uh, and uh, we began uh, writing about that uh, here because of the fact that we homeschooled our kids and discovered that in our collection of school books that there was massive amounts of information that is simply not put in modern uh, textbooks. And it, somewhere along the line, and we also report on where this all began to take place, they started deleting that. And one of the things that we point out is that Jesus Christ was actually a secular king of a government recognized by the Roman Empire, and that those who became Christians were literally opting out of the uh, Roman social security system and the Israel uh, or Judean uh, social security system called Corbin. And they were these free individuals, these uh, natural individuals that were returning to 
God as king. This is Christ was the only king that restored individuals back to their original status as free souls under God. And this was the conflict. This was where the persecution came from, jealousy. And that for almost a thousand years throughout Europe, you can find evidence where men are challenged by uh, men attempting to become kings would be told um, they all say they are kings. And that is their sovereignty. But we're going to have to finish this idea on the other side of the break because we only have a few more seconds. But we'll return to keep the kingdom after these words. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. If you'd like to get a copy of this program, you may subscribe at libertyradiolive.com for only $45 a month. And you'll receive an MP3 CD weekly of all the First Amendment Rights Media Group programs. As a bonus, we'll send you a password for our audio archives online. That's a $15 value. Or you can request any month of any program on one MP3 CD for a minimum donation of only $20. Or any single program on tape, MP3 CD, or CD for only $15. You can do all this online at LibertyRadioLive.com. Just follow the instructions to make a donation or subscribe. Don't do Internet? Then call 559-781-3773, 559-781-3773, and we'll be honored to help you. Thank you from all of us here at the First Amendment Rights Media Group. Fight the fight. We are here to equip you because you love the truth. LibertyRadioLive.com Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. My guest today is Alfred Adask, and we've been talking about a number of subjects. He's... he's, uh, uh, prolific speaker and giving me a great break from having to fill all this airtime by my lonesome. <laughs> but, uh, he's bringing up several interesting topics, and of course, we believe that iron sharpens iron. We believe that nobody has all the answers, and except for God Himself, and God gives pieces of the puzzle to each of us, and each of us who are willing to travel the journey will be willing to look at the different aspects of these, and he brought a fresh look 
at the concept of the kingdom, which is the right to be ruled by God. And, of course, the right to be ruled by God includes the responsibility to be ruled by God. In the earlier show, uh, he mentioned uh, genocidewatch.org. I actually went to the page on the break and looked up the eight stages of genocide, which I think is what he was referring to. And, of course, uh, I think I'll end up talking more about that on the show this afternoon that should have been this morning uh, that's been moved to 11.30 Pacific time on Blog Talk, which we will fill out the rest of uh, our statements on Paul, apostate or apostle. And uh, so if you want to listen to that, we'll record it and we'll pass it on to the rest of the network. Also, don't forget we have a Missouri gathering coming up here um, the uh, end of April. Uh, on the tw- I'll let Paul. Paul, are you there? Can you tell the details of that gathering? Because I know you'll, you're you're going to attempt to be there at that gathering. Yeah, it starts this Friday, April 20th. Is it the 20th? Yeah, 20th is this Friday in uh, northeastern Missouri, Lake of the Oaks. And, of course, the nitty-gritty details are available on the network. And um, get in touch with your local contact minister, and you'll learn all about it. But it starts this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday it wraps up. Okay. And uh, they they met there, I guess, last year, and they had a good time. And uh, it's open and welcome for anybody else. Of course, also later on this year, in the last week of September, we're having a uh, fall festival out here in Oregon. We got room for several thousand people, but I don't know if we'll have that many this year. But we're going to keep building it every year and get more and more people here to come uh, for that entire week uh, of gathering. And it's very important to enhance the entire network all across the country. I don't know if we're going to have people from other uh, countries. We do have people in Australia and in Canada, and if they can make it, great. Um, we will have at least one Englishman there uh, and anybody else who wants to come and more information is found at hisholychurch.org if you want to join the network that's the best way to get into the living network don't just depend on email folks and the internet get into the living network and you do that by uh, connecting with the little guy with the net at the top of the page and joining your local network and picking a contact point a contact minister, and he will start putting you in connection with other people in your area. It's all based on geography and doing it yourself. So with those announcements out of the way, uh, we're going to go back to our our guest. And I mentioned that website. You can go see those eight things, uh, classification, symbolization, dehumanization, uh, organization, all these different elements of the eight steps to genocide. And if you're reading them, you'll start seeing that that's exactly what people want you to do, is to go those eight steps <laughs> to, to genocide and to go along very comfortably. Uh, back to what we were talking about before the break, uh, this uh, idea of the... Um, uh, I, I have a lot more faith uh, and interest in the Declaration of Independence than I do in the actual Constitution of the United States. We have a book, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitution, that kind of brings the Constitution in light of the Bible, that there were some serious errors in there. Many of the early Americans 
uh, thought that there were serious errors. Most of the people were in opposition to it, but it really didn't have too much to do with the average citizen. I mean, the first election or the second election of president uh, only uh, pulled 13,000 voters out of the entire country. Um, it, it really didn't have much to do with the average guy because the average guy was down there on the road governing himself, taking care of his neighbor, taking care of the needs of his community, and were linked together through a network of people that actually had a common interest. What I see in history is that after Christ, all across Europe, there were free people. There were people trying to be kings. The Roman Empire was in its declining state. Um, it was falling apart uh, in, at the scene as well as rotten in the core. And there were other uh, governments that were based on individual responsibility, individual freedom, where the state was back in the hands of the individual people, and that history has simply been deleted. But that was a product of the gospel of Jesus Christ and people's willingness to understand and take back the responsibility of being the government of God, not ruling over their brothers, not exercising authority, not making men servants, being servants to righteousness. And then came the Inquisition, the rise of kings all over, and that divine right of king that uh, Alfred was talking about. Uh, I apologize for keep saying Alan for some reason or other. I'm not very good at names, but I'm I'm working on it. (laughs) But anyway... uh, I see that uh, the Declaration of Independence was a step back in that direction, but it was really only warranted because of the activities between 1600 and 1776 by a large percentage of the population of America, not the majority even, but at least a large percentage were seeking that responsibility and freedom. They were trying to own land. Uh, where they actually owned it, not settling for a legal title. They were forming communities. Actually, the tens, hundreds, and thousands was being used again uh, as a concept of self-government. They were, if you had any need, you didn't go to the government. You went to church. And churches were actually referred to as uh, embryonic republics. They weren't all that way, but there was a large percentage of those churches that were actually dealing with some of the fundamental issues of the gospel and governing ourselves in righteousness rather than ruling over our neighbor. So this brings me back to what you were talking about again, and I, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I only want to get conflict in the point where iron sharpens iron here, but I have a problem with thinking of the United States federal government as it is created today as being my servant because I think it's a wild beast out of control. I may not right. have the original intention. Uh, but anyway, I'm pretty sure you have a chance to respond in a way that clarifies your own position to our, our listeners. The Declaration of Independence, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the second sentence in the Declaration of Independence. It's the single most radical statement in Western political history in at least 2,000 years. 
There's nothing to rival it. Marx had nothing on the Declaration of Independence. This is big stuff, and they don't ever even teach it to children in, in, in grade school, high school, college. Nobody understands what it really means. No one gets, or very few people understand the significance. But the third sentence of the Declaration of Independence is all so powerful. It's to secure these rights meaning the God-given unalienable rights that they just talked about in the previous sentence, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. They are telling us that the purpose of government, as envisioned by the Founding Fathers, was to secure to every man, woman, and even unborn child their God-given unalienable rights. That was the prime directive. And it meant it was the foundation for calling this the land of the free. Because, in theory, the government was obligated to secure your rights, even if you were too ignorant, too lazy, to understand, or you lacked the courage or the intelligence to assert them. The government still had to secure those rights. That was their primary business. Government, of course, didn't want that. But it says governments, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And it goes on, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. What are the governments among men? Uh, is that a rhetorical question, or did you want well, to just kind of, I don't know, but if you answer, you might, you might get lucky and answer. The governments, it, the, the governments that were created by the Declaration of Independence were the first 13 states. They were completely independent from each other. The, the Declaration of Independence took 13 colonies and converted them into 13 states. Those states were operating under the fundamental principles of the Declaration of Independence. It was the business of the states to secure to every man, woman, and unborn child their God-given unalienable rights. Later, five years later, they come up with the Articles of Confederation, Year of Our Lord, 1781. And there they unite the 13 states. The, third, the Virginia, up until that point, Virginia was as separate from New York as, as France is from Spain. Two entirely different countries. Right? Each of the 13 states were separate nation states. But they came together under the Articles of Confederation, and the Articles of Confederation specifically declare that the style of this confederacy would be, and perpetual union, would be the United States of America. That's the proper name for the entity that was created by the Articles of Confederation. Later, a few years later, what, six years later, they come in with the Northwest Territorial Ordinance. And the Northwest Ordinance created made allowances for territories. There's no proviso for territories in the United States of America created under the Articles of Confederation. There's no proviso for Washington, D.C. in the United States of America created under the Articles of Confederation. But in order, they wanted to get a bigger constitution going, a stronger constitution. They had to do something about the territories. Virginia owned the land or claimed the land all the way from the what western boundary of what is Virginia today all the way on up to the Great Lakes. And Virginia ceded that and said, all right, we'll give that. We'll take the That won't be part of Virginia anymore. That won't be part of the state. What we'll do is we'll donate that territory to the federal government. And the articles of, or excuse me, Northwest Ordinance 
made proviso for the territory. And then they came in with Constitution of the United States. They created a different entity. It's not, it didn't replace the existing entity. It didn't replace the United States of America, but it is a different entity. It was there to serve the United States of America. And you can see some trace of that in the preamble of the Constitution, which says, We the people of the United States, and they mean the several United States, in order to form a more perfect union. They're referencing the union that was created in the Articles of Confederation. Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, secure the blessings of liberty. They point out that liberty is a blessing. It flows from God. It's not man-made. To ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Some people think that it says Constitution for the United States of America is the proper name of the document. Proper name of the document is Constitution, the Constitution of the United States. But the beneficiary of the document was the United States of America. The federal Constitution, Constitution of the United States, was intended to serve the states of the Union in the United States of America. I'm probably getting you pretty confused on this, but here's where I'm going with this. Let's see if I can get to the punchline on this. The United States of America did not include any territories, didn't include Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is in the United States, but it's not in the United States of America. The territories are in the United States, but they're not in the United States of America. And now I have lost my point. There was something I was trying to get to, and uh, you talk long enough, and you get you not only confuse your audience, you confuse yourself. Well, uh, I one of the things that you said, and, and, we'll, and maybe this will jog, jog you back in, into the track you were taking, is that you were talking about the Articles of Confederation uh, uh, forming this other union. Right. Here's where I'm going. Here's, uh, yeah, I got it now. Here's where we're going. The governments that are obligated to secure your God-given unalienable rights were the ones created by the states, created by the Declaration of Independence. But when you look to the Constitution of the United States under Article 7, it says the ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this Constitution between the states so ratifying the same. There is a, at least a chance that that language, the federal government is not between the people. It's between the states. It was up to the state governments to secure our God-given unalienable rights. I don't know that it was ever the responsibility of the federal government to secure our God-given unalienable rights, although that position is compromised by the Bill of Rights. They added this in, but it was essentially saying, don't you mess with these rights, don't you mess with these rights. It didn't say they had to do it. It was up to the states to, to secure our God-given unalienable rights, and it's not at all clear that the federal government was ever among men. It was between states. So is that true, or is it just, you know, a certain amount of sophistry? I'm not sure. Well, that, the, that's exactly what we point out in the book Contracts, Covenants, and Constitution, is that the, the, uh, the Constitution of the United States was an agreement between the states. There was debates at the time uh, that they shouldn't even put the words, we the people, 
And from our point of view, we the people actually, when it was first signed, only included those men who signed. They had no power to sign for anybody else other than themselves. They weren't delegated with that kind of authority. But they brought that Constitution to the states for ratification. And in the book, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, uh, uh, which we refer to as CCC, <laughs> to, to, brief, uh, to shorten it up, uh, we point out that uh, Clark's summary of U.S. American law uh, states that the states before and after the Constitution uh, were as, quote, as foreign to each other as Mexico is to Canada. So even the Articles of Confederation were simply like a treaty, a, an agreement between these uh, governments to operate according to the Articles of Confederation, which were rather weak, but in principle they were trying to maintain the sovereignty of the individual states. Uh, the, one of the stipulations in the Articles of Confederation is that nothing could change in those Articles of Confederation. No further union between states could take place without unanimous consent. And this is why Clark also comes to the conclusion that the Constitution of the United States was not legally ratified because it implemented it and actually coerced some of the states into agreeing to it before they had unanimous consent. Uh, but it, again, didn't have anything really to do with the individual, uh, I'll use the word citizen here, in the states because it was an agreement between the states. It was never put to a popular vote. Uh, it is agreed by most historians that most Americans were in opposition to it. Certainly men like Patrick Henry was in opposition to it. But it came about just the same, and it was an agreement with somebody that created this external entity called the United States federal government, at least that's what we call it today, uh, that was out in this tw eventually in this 10 square miles called Washington, D.C. But really where I want to go with this is what is the nature of a that government that are instituted? We can institute all kinds of governments. Which government is truly following according to the plan of God? And we use the term pure republic. Uh, no, we don't. Find that. No, I don't well, agree with the pure I, When republic. I say we, I'm saying uh, us here. <laughs> so we use this term. We define it. And a pure republic is not an indirect democracy. A pure republic is based on the concept of republic originally, which is removed from most of our school books, which comes from the Latin idiom libera res publica, which means free from things public, which means you are back in that place where you have those unalienable rights, uninfringed by any government, and the power of the state, the power of the imperium, as the Romans would call it, is not in the hands of an individual or a senate or a congress, but in the hand um, of each individual. And you are in this natural state. It's through the social contract that we abandon uh, this state of nature under the nature of God and uh, the God of nature, uh, the creation, the God. And that's what we want to avoid is that social contract that decreases our status as those free souls under God. And we believe that Christ actually was offering that to those who would profess Christ, which is why they were kicked out of the system of Corbin of the Pharisees, and that Pentecost was a second exodus. 
and we, we detailed this out. I'm, I'm kind of throwing this out to you to get your comments on it, but uh, now I'll give you the stage uh, so that you can make comments on what I just said. <laughs> well, I would, I, the way I understand the term republic is a republic is simply a system of government where anyone can participate in government. For example, you could have a monarchy where the king was there, he was the sovereign, and the nobles are there, and the rest of that, but the average man could not participate in the government. He could not be an officer, he couldn't even be an employee. Average guy just couldn't get into that situation. Um, a lot of governmental structures are designed where not everyone can participate. The way I understand republic is that under a republic, anyone can, part anyone can grow up to be president in the republic in a republic. You all got a shot at it. But a republic includes a republic, in my understanding, includes the communist system, for example. It includes democracy. It includes the republican form of government that was advocated and mandated by our Constitution, both at the state and federal levels. Uh, all it means is everybody gets to take, everybody gets a shot at being president is in broad strokes the way I understand a republic. But what we were guaranteed in our Constitution was the Republican form of government. And I think it's Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution. I might not have the section correct. But it says the United States shall guarantee to each state in this union a Republican form of government. In theory, if we have 50 states in the union, there should be 50 separate Republican forms of government. Get a Republican form of government for Texas, another Republican form of government for Oklahoma, another one for New York, another one for Oregon, and so on. Each state must have the Republican form of government. That's not the same as a republic. And it's very, it's the kind of thing that is extremely deceptive. It's subtle. It's the sort of thing that, in my opinion, has to be understood. When you talk about what kind of government you have, how do you discern between one government and another? One form of government between a monarchy and an aristocracy and a democracy and a republican form of government. What is the difference? How do you discern between which is which? And the answer is, who holds sovereign power? In a monarchy, one man holds sovereign power. That's why it's a monarchy. In an aristocracy, an elite group holds sovereign power. It's called an aristocracy. It's called an, and therefore called an aristocracy. All else are subjects. In a democracy... We the people are sovereign. In the republican form of government, we the people are sovereign. And that's where you get into your second question. Second question is how do you discern between a republic and, or excuse me, between the republican form of government and the democracy? We the people are sovereign in both of them, but they're not the same kinds of government. We the people are sovereign as a collective in a democracy. We, the people, are sovereign as individual sovereigns in, in the Republican form of government. The Republican form of government is the one that's consistent with the principles we find in the Declaration of Independence. The democracy is fundamentally just another form of communism. It's a collectivist form of government. It is presumed that the will of the sovereign, and the sovereign is the collective in the democracy, that will is... is communicated by means of voting. It is presumed that the majority express, the majority in any election express the will of the collective. 
but the collective is the sovereign. Each individual man and woman has no significant rights in the democracy. Democracy wants to vote to take your house, your car, your kids, your cash, whatever. If the, if the majority vote, let's take all of Gregory's stuff. They get it. You have no significant rights in the democracy other than to vote. In the Republican form of government, it doesn't matter how many there are. They can't trespass against your God-given unalienable rights. Well, I don't know if I've made that very clear, but... Well, we're absolutely, uh, generally speaking, uh, at least from my point of view, I can't say we're speaking for everybody on this network. I can say it from those that are immediately within my family, <laughs> that uh, we're not in favor of democracy whatsoever. We've written a number of articles and even books uh, on the subject of the difference between a democracy and a pure republic. And I use the word pure republic because of the fact that republics have been twisted, uh, the idea of what a republic has been twisted in our minds along with a lot of other vocabulary, and would just use that term to distinguish it. The U.S. creed, uh, which was uh, passed uh, not into law, but at least uh, uh, ratified by Congress on April 3, 1918, uh, gives us some insight into what they think is going on anyway, and it says, uh, if I can find the beginning, I believe in the United States of America as a government whose just powers are derived from the consent of the governed, yep. a democracy in a republic. That's and a democratic think, process, though. I mean, I don't know, what was the year that you're reading from? That was 1918. It was just a way in which there it was a talking, it was there was a deal to create an American creed, which actually shows you the religious nature of the government right there. And I, I don't approve of it, but the point I was trying to make is this concept that the United States federal government is an indirect democracy in a republic. And that's also why I pointed out that most people didn't have any interest in voting for the presidency because it had very little to do with anything going on in the state at that time in the beginning. Today... The federal government has a great deal of influence within the states, but not so much because of unwarranted usurpations, but because of the apathy of the people, the applications of the people, the covetousness of the people applying to the federal government for benefits at the expense of their neighbor. If you look at the communist countries, they all consider themselves republics, but they are communist governments. You know, but this is consistent. That exactly illustrates my point. All republic means is that everybody gets a shot at being uh, the president or the head commissar or whatever. It's not a profoundly... A lot of people say, oh, I want a republic. It's not that big a deal. The republican form of government, the term appears in the Constitution of the United States as guaranteed the states of the Union. It also appears in the Constitution of the state of Texas. They refer specifically to the republican form of government. Article 1, Section 2, I can't quote it precisely, of the Texas Constitution. It says, Texas, uh, uh, subject to this limitation only. And that limitation is having a Republican form of government. Texans can do anything they want with their government, but they can never, never, never get rid of the Republican form of government. What's the Republican form of government? It's the one that recognizes the people as being endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Point one and point two principal business of government is to secure those God-given unalienable rights. 
That's the Republican form of government. It's not merely a republic. It's something, in my opinion, that was unique to this country. They used that word, that, that phrase, Republican form of government, as a kind of code to signal, look, we're not just talking about the old run-the-mill republic. This one's the special one. This is the one that recognizes we each get our rights from God, and the business of government is to secure those God-given rights. From my perspective, that's the Republican form. Right. I think we're actually coming close to agreement here as to what a republic is, but we're also running out of time for this half-hour segment, so maybe we'll address this more when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. And, again, if I quickly get it before the music starts, the telephone number, if you have a question, is 559-726-1300. Code number 795-132. Back. Fight the fight. We are here to equip you. Because you love the truth, LibertyRadioLive.com. The program you are listening to is 100% sponsored by you, the listener, on this First Amendment Rights Media channel. You will notice that there are few commercials on this radio network. There's a good reason for that. Corporate advertising dollars come with strings that limit program content. So without your help, these programs cannot continue on Internet or our several affiliates. If you benefit by the educational law programs, we ask you to give. If you are admonished or nurtured by the Bible and ministry programs, we ask you to give. If some voice a cause that you are passionate about, we ask you to give. If you believe in any of these, we ask you to support them as you would a missionary on a continual basis, as if giving a tithe for Missionary Radio. These programs are not commercially viable and must be supported by those faithful to the cause of truth. Look for the button to sponsor your favorite programs at our Listen and Schedule pages on the Internet. Then, when you subscribe, we will send you the last quarterly MP3 CD of that program immediately and continue to do so with each new quarter. We will also give you unlimited archive access to all of our programs. We're asking you to give much less than a tithe so that you may also send support directly to a particular program host, cause, and anywhere else the Spirit may lead you. Do all to the glory of our God and Creator, for His holy nation, the only kingdom that will last forever. Thank you for listening. Now listen to me. The Bible says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. I want you to know that a corporation is Caesar. Government takeover of the church. This DVD is the most powerful tool we have 
for waking up those asleep in the pews. The scripture calls for his people to come out of her. The corporate church is the apostate church, the whore that rides the beast. Make copies and give them away to your corporate church friends and loved ones. The truth will make them free. They will watch the DVD, Government Takeover of the Church. Who will tell them if not you? Get this DVD for a donation of $25 from LibertyRadioLive.com. Order online today or call 559-781-3773. Now listen to me. Welcome back to Kings of the Kingdom. I'm talking with Alfred Adak, and we're talking about the concept of a republic. And, of course, this has been a controversy for century upon century as exactly what the nature of this term is supposed to be referring to as far as the nature of government. And since I am a firm believer that history repeats itself, I went back and took a look at a quote that we've have in the book Higher Liberty, which is explaining what Paul was really talking about when he he said what they accused him of saying in Romans 13, which is actually the opposite of what he was saying in most cases. Uh, but Tacitus had uh, referenced this term republic, and he says Tacitus repeatedly contrasts the res publica under the emperors with the pre-Augustus libera res publica. He distinguishes between the old res publica, which he calls the populus Romanus, and the new res publica, which he calls Caesar. He says the old res publica hardly had a mixed constitution which dreamers assigned it and which actually never can exist, but it was something greater and majestic which lives on in the glorious memory in a mean age. Uh, Tacitus was a man lacking a certain amount of faith. It is our opinion that Christ was actually talking about that uh, populus Romanos, that uh, libera res publica, where each man was again sovereign over his own life, but not over the life of his brother, in a kingdom of God based on the righteousness of God, and therefore the responsibilities that God has placed on man's shoulders to dress and keep this planet without exercising authority over his brother, except when his brother begins to abuse his other brothers. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that is what a, a, the original concept of a republic, but in the republic, you have a right to make a social contract which may diminish your rights. And I'll read one more quote here, and then I'll turn it back over to Alfred so that he can uh, respond and give us his opinion, because that's why we're having guests, to have other people's opinion, to have iron sharpened iron. A social contract is an agreement or a covenant by which men are said to have abandoned the state of nature uh, to form a society in which they now live. The state of nature has to do with divine law, the, where God created you. He created you with those endowed, inalienable rights. Uh, and so supposedly the social contract is when he abandons the state of nature. In the definition it goes on to say, assumes that men at first lived in a state of anarchy 
where there was no society, no government, no organized coercion of the individual by the group. By the social contract, men had surrendered their natural liberties in order to enjoy the order and safety of the organized state. Now, it is our contention that the organized uh, state is not safety. It is not your salvation. <laughs> that your real salvation is to organize yourself in righteousness with your brothers, like John was saying and uh, John the Baptist was saying and Christ was saying, that you need to bind yourself together in a process of faith, hope, and charity where you take care of the needs of your society. Religion is defined as how you take care of the needy of your society, the truly needy, and not giving them just blanket charity, but charity that really helps them, which sometimes is no charity at all. And this is what the early church was doing, that it was literally, as Gibbon says, a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire, where you paid your taxes to the church, not to any popes or pontiffs, but to actually men you choose, gathering together, as they said, in 150 A.D., and those having shared with those that did not have enough. And this is what got the Christian community through the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, where it was so strong, even though it was only about 5% of the Roman uh, population, it was so strong and so independent that Constantine made a feeble attempt at emulating what the Christians were doing and created what has now come down to us as the apostate church. But anyway, that's a lot to jam into a few minutes, but uh, this is our last half hour, so I thought we'd get down to the nitty-gritty, and I'll turn it over to Alfred. And if he has any comments or questions on what I just said, uh, maybe we can get some real sparks flying and get that iron as sharp as we can. <laughs> Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I don't know where to jump. I can clarify anything that you want to ask me about as, and so that we can get, because we only have a half hour, we want to get to some real meat, so to speak, in our conversation. Well, I think the big point is this. Again, what it comes down to, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Agreed. And the people that we are warring against are there to impose, and not even impose. They are there for you to choose. This system depends on your choice. And that, for me, is evidence of a certain amount of satanic influence. And here's why I say that. None of us will go, because Satan came up behind us and put a gun to our head and said, you better start marching into hell or I'm going to blow your brains out. We will go to hell if we're going because we have chosen to go. By our lives and our choices, we will have said, well, yeah, I don't mind going to hell. I don't mind being damned. Now, people will sit back and say, well, I never made that choice. Well, you did if you didn't recognize there was a choice to be made. It will be made for you. But what point I'm trying to make is Satan can't compel you into this alternative system. You've got to choose to go into it. And he wants that because he wants you to choose to turn your back on God. When I talked in the beginning of the program about being sued by the Attorney General of the state of Texas, again, 25000 a day, $9 million a year, we stopped them 
with a religious freedom defense. They'd invested six years and a half million dollars in that case, and they simply dropped it rather than confront our defense in front of a jury. This is evidence that the system that's there is consensual. It presumes your consent. All right? If you can manifest that you don't consent, and if you can manifest that you are pulling your, you're, you're making your claim on rights that flow from the Bible, if you are astute, all right? It's not easily done. But if you do, they will say, yeah, buddy. We recognize that. Even the Satanists will come forward and say, yeah, all right, fine, if you're taking your claim on God and the Christ, fine, get out of here. Now, that sounds fantastic even to me, and yet I've seen it happen. And it's simply more evidence this is spiritual warfare. It's not just. I mean, we are used to seeing the idea that the police officers are going to come out there with their guns and their clubs and their tasers and the rest of it and just beat the hell out of people or whatever and compel them to obey. And there's some truth to that. But the heart of this system is consent. And you are presumed to have consented to go into an alternative system that's not the Republican form of government. You are presumed to have consented to a democracy. How do you get out? Once you begin to understand it's spiritual warfare, then you can begin to manifest spiritual defenses. And it's the sort of thing you'll never find a licensed attorney who's going to do that on your behalf. <laughs> You're going to have to do it yourself. Yeah, you understand it's very, yeah, very important that people realize that attorneys operate with your power of attorney, which you consensually gave them. And you have just hired a mercenary to fight your battles for you, which is not unlike what you did when you called on Saul to be your king. Yeah. Uh, it's just done on a very small scale when you hire an attorney. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the things, maybe before we get to the end of the program, maybe we should take this, because uh, I, I think that we're very close. We just each have different pieces of the puzzle, and we're sharing them as best we can with our listening audience. Um, one of the things that Christ did, and I believe that Christ was showing us this way back and, and how to deal with the spiritual warfare, I believe that the early Christians were assuming a, uh, a status as this free soul under God, and that most of the persecution was the result of jealousy, of a system that was operating according to the perfect law of liberty was literally a separate nation. Christians were an expert nation. None of them were any longer applying for benefits at uh, the temples of Saturn, which is where they registered their birth certificates. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we point out historically is one of the reasons why uh, Christians were persecuted under Marcus Aurelius is he made it mandatory that you had to register the birth of your child within 30 days at the, their Bureau of Vital Statistics, which was located in the Temple of Saturn. All these temples were simply government buildings. Um, and that they wouldn't do this because Jesus said, call no man on earth father, and that's literally what they were doing by doing that to obtain benefits. But anyway, that's another whole long tangent. The point is, is what Christ was doing, what John the Baptist was doing, was showing them another way 
to operate as a society based on faith, hope, and charity and what Paul calls the perfect law of liberty, where they help one another. And I see one of the key things that's going to happen in the genocide future of the world is that if you don't admit that you're one of their herd and consent to being one of their herd, one of their human resources, they're going to attempt to exclude you from any of the things that they will call benefits, the corporate world, the, the corporations, the 501c3s, whatever you want to call them, uh, that they have out there that are part of their minions. They're going to exclude you. I can see it with uh, their food stamps. 50, was it 45 million Americans a number of years ago was on food stamps. And that number must have grown immensely during this last recession, depression. Um, and soon it will be that you, if you want to buy a loaf of bread in one of their stores and you don't have one of those cards, it could cost you $10, $20 at, the, at a runaway rate of inflation. So what people need to do is start doing what the early church did, is gathering together, binding themselves not with social contracts, but with faith, hope, and charity, and, and trust, and uh, and those sort of things that were part of the early church, or they're going to find themselves between a rock and a hard place, uh, but they have to be motivated out of that desire for righteousness, not out of fear of what may be coming around the corner. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to... Alfred, and say, what do you think about that? Is there any kind of network that you guys are putting together, or no? I haven't been putting any sort of a network together per se. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not associated with any networks uh, per se. And the rest of that, I mean, I talk on the radio, and if people, you know, if they if they can make any sense out of what I'm saying, and it rings their bell, and they want to, you know, it helps in their own life. Well, that's that's fine with me. Um, I don't know, but I don't have a network per se. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, and we didn't for a long time. You know, I've been talking about this, uh, you know, originally. I, I can't even remember how many years. It must be 20, 25 years now that uh, I wrote the book Covenants of the Gods and then wrote the book Thy Kingdom Comes and and addressed uh, Romans 13 and Higher Liberty. Uh, it is our contention that what Paul actually said, and, and we bear this out with an entire book of information on it, although you can read it and get the first chapter and you get the gist of it, what he was actually saying is that uh, let every man remain subject to the higher liberty because all liberty is of God. There is no mm -hmm. liberty but of God, and anyone who sure. opposes liberty opposes God. Yeah. And the reason we translate it that way is because that word means liberty. It's the strongest word in the Greek language for liberty or right to choose. You could put the word right to choose there. It's even translated liberty elsewhere in the Bible, translated right several times in the Bible. And But that completely overthrows most of what you're getting out of these 501c3 churches who say that you're supposed to obey the government. And, of course, if you have a contract with them by consent, and you are praying to them for your benefits, uh, then, yeah, you may have to do what they say because they're your father. Uh, they're your daddy. They're your sugar daddy. But they're your sugar daddy because they take away from your neighbor, and we don't think that's uh, lawfully what Christians should be doing. 
So anyway, we started forming this network, what we call the Living Network, where we're just putting people in touch with each other. We're not regulating them. We're not ruling over them. But we're trying to get them on a local basis because just listening to your radio, just which you may have to do, uh, just reading the books and the articles, which you may have to do in order to get to wherever you need to go, but you need to make contact with people on the ground where you live. And you need to not do that just in a congregational sense, but in a kingdom sense, you know, where congregations are connected with congregations. And um, so anyway, uh, that's what we've started, and we encourage anybody who's uh, enjoyed uh, Alfred's comments, and I'm going to give him some more time here to maybe talk about other things that he thinks might be important for people to take a look at or understand. Uh, 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 but anyway, uh, I, I encourage everybody to join that network, get involved with that network on a local basis, and make connections with other people that are beginning to wake up to the spiritual reality that we have become human resources. I think one of the things you mentioned was that Satan doesn't march anybody into hell at the point sure. of a gun. Uh, that's, that's very important. It is by consent. And uh, one of the reasons why you can see a satanic involvement in everything that's going on in the world today is that it is by seduction. It is by alluring you to become involved with activities that are clearly in opposition to the fundamental laws that God has passed down in the Koran, in the light by Buddha, in any of these things of this idea of coveting your neighbor's goods exercising authority over your neighbor, making your uh, your neighbor the beast of the field rather than your brother. And even if your neighbor doesn't want to go along with the righteousness of God, you have a responsibility to defend your neighbor, but you don't have a right to oppress your neighbor, even the stranger in your midst, uh, for your benefit especially. And so, anyway, that's why we're forming this network and trying to get people to to come together. Whether they come together or not, uh, that's not uh, important to us as it is to them. But to us, it's important that we do what God is putting on our hearts, and that's what he's been putting on our hearts. But I'm going to, because you've been such a great guest, and I think you've opened up a lot of thinking for a lot of people, I want to give you a little bit more time in this last half hour to, uh, I know you've talked about gold and silver a lot. I only listened to one little program of yours uh, in order to prepare for this because I don't get any time to listen to the radio. <laughs> I talk on it more than I listen. Uh, but uh, are there other things that you would recommend people take a look at and to maybe help waken them up to... Uh, starting this path to righteousness themselves uh and i'll turn it over to you and i don't i'm not putting you on the spot but i think you can probably fill some air time again <laughs> so, yeah i'm able i'm able to fill in a few minutes from time to time uh <laughs> talk about gold and silver here's a question for your audience you can read the constitution of the united states you can get a copy of it you can read it you can find it on the internet Look at Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1. Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1, which declares in part 
no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. All right? That section of the Constitution has never been repealed. It's never been amended. And yet, when was the last time you saw gold or silver coin in domestic circulation? The gold went out of domestic circulation in 1933. The silver went out by 1968. We haven't had gold or silver in domestic circulation in this country for over 40 years. And yet, what passed for state government continues to function. They apply fines. They apply taxes. They uh, charge fees. And they do it in a monetary system other than gold and silver. Now, one of two things has to be true. Either, and, and note, and this is an important section of the Constitution, it says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. It does not say the federal government can't do it. It does not say no territory can do it. It does not say Washington, D.C. can't make anything but gold and silver coin. The only entities that can't make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt are the states of the Union. What happens to the states of the Union if they remove the gold and silver coin? And the answer is they either continue to function as states of the Union, but they are acting unconstitutionally every time they touch a form of currency other than gold and silver coin, and that's all your fines and penalties and taxes and fees and so on. Or what passes for state government today is something other than a state of the Union. It is my contention that when they took the gold out and then they took the silver out, they did it to render the states of the Union insolvent. These are the entities that are the governments among men. These are the ones that are obligated to secure your God-given unalienable rights. And insofar as we are functioning with Federal Reserve notes, Right? It becomes prima facie evidence that you're not acting within a state of the union. And if you're not, there's nobody there to secure your God-given unalienable rights. Now, you may be able to do it on your own if you're skillful, but historically, they had to do it whether you knew what they were or not. That was at least the foundation. That was the presumption that this country is built on. My point is, it's not an accident that they've taken the gold and silver away. It's not just economics. It was intended, in my opinion, to render the state, the governments of the states of the Union insolvent. They're not functioning, in my opinion. And when you see somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm for, I work for the state of Texas, I am inclined to say, the heck you do. You're not, you're getting, if, if you're not getting paid in gold and silver, you're working for something else. And this is an important question, because if you're not really the government of the state of the Union, where are you getting the authority over me? Right. This is uh, history again repeating itself. Uh, one of the things I pointed out to people time and time again at the time of Christ, uh, a sack of wheat was six denarii, which is equivalent to about six dimes. By Diocletian, it was 120,000 denarii for the same sack of wheat. And this was because Nero and subsequent emperors took all the silver out of the Roman silver coin. Mm -hmm. And they were doing that after 
Christ in the beginning of the first century church. And uh, when I was a kid, you could buy a loaf of bread for a dime, and now it takes a whole lot of notes to buy a loaf of bread, and it's bound to increase. Uh, the reality is... Oh, when I was a kid, that, you could buy a dime for a dime, and now if you want to buy a silver dime, it'll probably cost you three, three and a half. Right, absolutely. Uh, and I agree that uh, part of that was to make the states impotent, but also to make the people impotent, because you can't... You cannot pay a debt with a note. No, I understand. Uh, and so it, 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 there's so many layers to this. But, again, if we're going to look at solutions in the last few minutes, uh, of course, education is part of that solution, knowing what the problem actually is. And the problem is actually spiritual. But Christ didn't come just in spirit. He came in spirit and truth. He was showing us a way that we could come together and one of the another little quote that we are very fond of here is that we have to learn to stand alone as individuals, but together, and bind ourselves not by contract again, but by that faith, hope, and charity, by that love of neighbor, love my neighbor's rights as much as I love my own, and that's where we I guess we started that is the people who want to be free but don't care about anybody else's freedom but their own. But anyway, we're at the end of the show. I want to thank Alfred Adask, who has his own radio program, too, for being here. Thanks, Alfred. Thanks, Paul. And uh, peace be upon everybody's house. Thank you, Gregory. Thanks, Alfred. Thank you. Talk to you another time. Thank you, Paul. God bless. Bye. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.